Hi, everybody. I'm George, and welcome to the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest has a brief appearance in a movie that I love very much, our RoboCop remake as a dancing (laughs) thug, I think, and the host of the So You Did a Thing podcast. Please welcome Zed Kutzinger. Welcome, man. Yeah, thanks for welcoming me. I, you know... It's it's crazy how much people bring up this uh, RoboCop performance I did, and it's. <laughs> I feel like at this point there's more to me than that performance, but you know that's pretty much all anyone focuses on. So I'm hoping we can move past that at some point. Sure, hey man, uh, I'm I'm happy to help uh, move past, but you got you got to admit when you're in a RoboCop remake, it's something that people are going to talk about. So I mean, if if we're being honest, no one has ever brought this up before, so I was. No, I was not expecting that. Um, Yeah, that the whole project, it was just such a cool idea where they took all these uh, directors and they all, was it five minutes or something? Right. It was something like that. It's like a hundred and something scenes. It's it's something wild. And yeah, everyone got to to do their own little scene and assemble it into one giant RoboCop remake that said, fuck you to the actual one coming out. Yeah. And also, if anyone hasn't seen any of these, there's one of the segments, which I was not in, which is the most incredible where RoboCop is just, it's a montage, I guess you could say of him just shooting off people's dicks. (laughs) It is. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I kind of just wish that was the entire, if every director was like, Oh, we need to have a dick get shot off in this (laughs) scene, but I could see maybe that would get uh, old after a while. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Look, the only way to know for sure is to make our RoboCop remake remake. Oh, interesting. Is this a, George, is this a a legitimate proposition right now? Are we going to make the RoboCop? Okay. I think so. Yeah, I'm in. And people will know me for the RoboCop remake remake instead of just the remake. (laughs) Wow. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Talk about exclusive right up top. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your history with horror, where your love for it comes from, how it started, all that stuff. Yes, I feel like this is probably for, I'm 37, so I'm assuming this is how it is for a lot of people, but going to the local video uh, rental place uh, where I grew up, which was called Video Droid, which also, if you kind of get into the owner of this uh, local video store, his name's Mitch Lowe, if you look him up, very involved with Netflix, uh, Redbox, and then MoviePass, if you look up Mitch Lowe, I think he was the CEO when (laughs) everything went down. So there's like some interest, uh, peripherally also like one of my classmates, it was his dad. So when all this stuff was going on in the New York Times, I'm seeing his name and I'm like, oh my God, this is the guy who owned Videodroid. <laughs> our, our local video store, really cool. The, the workers there were just awesome. Like one day, I remember going in and on the little screen projection thing that they had, they were showing Akira. And this was sometime, I think in the early 90s. And I just remember being like, what is this? And just kind of... <laughs> You know, and renting it maybe in my parents being like, oh, maybe this wasn't a good rental. But. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyways, g- going to this video store, you know, they had the horror section. And what really drew me into the horror genre initially was the VHS artwork, the covers. I think we all remember the ghoulies on the toilet, a uh, house, you know, the <laughs> severed hand. There's all this imagery. And I just was so into it that you know i convinced my parents to rent some of them but also because i was in elementary school there were nightmares as a result <laughs> so i had to like not sure. watch them <laughs> and sometimes just going into that section and looking at the artwork would give me nightmares not even seeing the movie <laughs> which i guess speaks to my imagination also 
through the VHSs, if you parted them a little bit, the the porno section was next to it, so you could kind of peek into that. <laughs> Do you remember that there was like a there would be like a curtain and then the porno section at the local rental? <laughs> you say, "All right, I'm going to look down the comedies," and then you poke your head in. <laughs> exactly. Growing up, my dad was obsessed with uh, John Carpenter. You know, more specifically, they live so. Horror was, a, I guess, a part of the viewings I, I had as, as a kid. I would say that's how I got introduced. And then, you know, as a kid of the 90s, I feel like the 90s were not especially a strong period for horror. I, I don't know if everyone would agree with that. I think there's a reason why, no offense if people love Scream, there's a reason why Scream is seen as one of the best movies of horror of the 90s. You compare Scream to the 70s and 80s horror movies, it's maybe not on the same level, but, you know, or as we're about to get into, horror from the 60s. Sure. And even even to that point, it's pulling so much of Scream as an homage to those movies that came before. So I think it stands apart from a lot of the movies in the 90s that were trying to do their own thing because it is pulling from a more direct influence. Yeah, a recap and a horror movie for horror lovers because it's talking about all the stuff that, you know, if you love horror movies, you get all the nods. Some of them are overt because they're literally <laughs> talking about them. But some of them are more like, oh, I, I get that this is an homage so around that time period, I was like, you know, what? maybe I don't like horror. And then, you know, there was a, a certain age where I've gotten way more into movies. And I was like, I'm going to watch as many movies as I can. Started going through watching all these horror movies. And now at this point, I would say absolutely love horror. I think what's so special about it is that like sci-fi or, you know, these kind of more genre, uh, these heightened genres is that you get people at a level of their emotion that you wouldn't normally get. And as a result, we get to see really interesting human, not experience, but just people reacting to situations that are so enormous that we just get to see these things that could never happen in a drama because they're so otherworldly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. As you explored horror, I'm wondering, did you ever come across like a favorite subgenre, like one that uh, you are more willing to give the benefit of the doubt to, or are you kind of just catch as catch can? Uh, I'm trying to think if, the, if there's one. I mean, I, I've realized for sure my favorite as a, a subgenre is the sci-fi horror, which is so interesting because a lot of science fiction is what it, like the what if. What if this invention, what if this thing happened, and kind of exploring, you know, sometimes the emotional, but the, the reaction, how would this affect society? How would this affect the individual? Mm-hmm. But with horror, it's what if this thing happened, and then what is the worst case <laughs> right. scenario? Like, what is the fallout? And uh, there's a bit of, I don't know if it's cynicism or pessimism or nihilism. There is like a negative, horror kind of has the negative perspective on the future and science. And I'm like, as someone who gravitates towards (laughs) the dark, (laughs) the negative, the things that maybe aren't good, I really, really absolutely love uh, the the hybrid genre of sci-fi horror. Yeah, and uh, I, I agree. I think it's really easy for sci-fi to kind of flip into that horror element because uh, when you're projecting, it's very easy to imagine the worst happening. So uh, I think uh, those are those have some really incredible movies for sure in, in that sci-fi horror area. Oh, yeah, some of the greatest, but I, I think we can agree, not the greatest. Absolutely <laughs> not, because the greatest horror movie of all time is, of course, Kuroneko, a 1968 Japanese movie whose full but less common name is Yabu no Naka no Kuroneko, which translates to a black cat in a bamboo grove or simply a black cat. 
This is pulling double duty, though, because Yabu no Naka is also an idiom about a puzzling mystery. Yes, and as someone who doesn't speak Japanese, I'm just looking at this name, and it looks like just the 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 string of syllables. It just it looks cool. It sounds cool. I'm glad yeah. that there is a translation, but I actually will argue that this movie, even without being able to read the subtitles, is so visual. Like you are able to follow everything that's happening. This is. Uh, I would say this is a universal film, and I think that's one of its strengths, but yeah. Absolutely. I think that um, a lot of that comes from the theatricality of it. It's these big, broad emotions that are really projected on screen. It's also pretty quiet, ultimately, in terms of dialogue. You know, the first dialogue doesn't happen for like 10 minutes in the movie, and a lot of it is really more about the atmosphere and the score that creates that atmosphere. And I, I think you're absolutely right that if the subtitles were turned off, that people would still get a lot out of this movie. Yeah. And I think that is speaking to, to one of the strengths, which is the power of this movie and, you know, kind of transcending the genre. But real quick, I, I do want to kind of set up a criteria when I'm, I'm saying the greatest horror movie, because I think a lot of the times when people talk about the greatest horror movie, they're kind of talking about what is the scariest movie. Mm-hmm. Or, and I think to go uh, analogous to other genres, you know, what's the best comedy? What's the funniest movie? And I think that's not the right way to look at it. And to even go more analogous, when you're talking about the best hot sauce, that's not the spiciest <laughs> hot sauce. You know what I mean? The best hot sure. sauce, it is hot, but it doesn't have to be the spiciest. Yeah. It's got to have some flavor, too. Yes, it needs to have some, some flavor. It's more than th- the spice. And I think, you know, to also go back to, to movies, when people are talking about the best dramas, there is no question of, well, what is the most dramatic? So I think it's interesting when people talk about, more specifically, comedy and horror, Well, people go, well, what is the scariest? What is the funniest? And while I think that is an interesting conversation, I think what makes the best horror, the best comedy, doesn't necessarily coincide with what is the scariest and what is the funniest. And this is important because... While Kuroneko has elements of, of fear in it, I don't think this is a particularly scary film. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you. You know, I have mentioned this before on the show, but to me, part of the best, p- peeling behind the curtain a little bit, what I actually think is really important in a, mo- in a movie is an element of accessibility. You know, I think that it's kind of hard for me to say that something like Martyrs is the best horror movie ever made, even though we covered it. And I think that it has an interesting message and a lot of great stuff to it because it's really hard for a lot of people to put themselves through the experience to get that message. So whatever it may be a harrowing or traumatizing movie to watch, even though it's the scariest to some people, it might not be the best because it's just so hard to get people to get through it. And on the opposite end of the spectrum of that, I I think there is an element with this movie, which I think is the hardest part for people to watch it, is, I guess, the slowness. Whereas that mm-hmm. one is so intense, it's hard to watch. I think for a lot of people, movies from the 60s, you know, whether it's pre-70s, pre-80s, pre-90s, just depending on what age group you're in, there's kind of a point where you're like, movies that are predecessors to this particular decade are hard to watch because of the pacing. And I think that's... I would argue that is the biggest obstacle with this movie, but like all things that are challenging, if you can rise to the occasion, it is so rewarding, it is so fulfilling. I think there are so many uh, films that once you can kind of get over that hurdle of being able to not be like, oh, this is boring, I don't want to watch it, put your phone down, put 100% attention into Kironeko, and it is so rewarding. There are so many things about this movie that I don't think most 
uh, and by most, I think that's an understatement, but most horror movies touch the kind of emotional flair that this movie is able to touch upon. Yeah. Whereas I think most horror movies, and this isn't necessarily a criticism of them, of them, but it's also maybe why they're not the best. Most horror movies don't really touch on more emotions beyond fear. And I think this movie, there's a, a melancholy, there's a sadness, there's a happiness. It touches on all these things. Again, with the backdrop of ghosts and something kind of dark and sinister going on, which is why I put it you know, in sure. the horror genre, I think that what this movie does, it achieves it on a level that no other horror movie does, and that is why I would argue it is the greatest. Peaks and valleys of emotion. That's a great point. And also, to, to speak about the, the score, it's interesting because I think it's, the score is such a big part of the horror genre, obviously in the, you know, eighties and stuff, you get the synth, you know, the John Carpenter, all, all these styles that is so, it, you can't remove that from that particular decade. And, you know, more recently we've seen composers, you know, do a throwback to it. The score in this movie, I, I only actually remember it maybe three or four times, but there's a repetition to it. It's very percussive and it kind of feels like you're watching sure. a, like a k- Kabuki produ- production or something. And it, the repetition and it, it, it it pulls you in in a way that I think a lot of horror movies, they drench you in atmosphere. The atmosphere in this is more subtle, but once you're in, mm. you realize that, you know, not even getting into the visuals, the audio just pulls you in in a way where it is so minimal, you're kind of leaning forward and you're you're noticing small things that you might not otherwise. Yeah, the score really is fantastic. It, as you say, is very percussive. It's got a real drive to it it's very forward moving like it really feels like uh, as you say it pulls you in and 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 you can tell that something intense is about to happen uh, it definitely draws from kabuki and no theater and not just in the score but also in the shot design and the lighting choices as well it's really spectacular looking in terms of this like visual striking thing so when i first saw this movie when i was doing like a deep dive on horror movies I thought it was incredible, but I didn't really understand, I guess, where it was coming from beyond the influence of, of Japanese theater. Uh, on the Criterion channel, there's like a 17-minute video where there's like a film critic who talks uh, about this movie and kind of where it was coming from. Some really interesting insight. One of the things that I actually really want to get into, but he brings up uh, expressionism, which is something I wasn't very familiar with until I got into a lot of these old older films. But yeah, the uh, the stark quality, the the contrast... The whites are very white. The blacks are very black. There, I feel like this movie, there's not a lot of gray in it. And I think this movie very much fits in uh, kind of on a, a global, you know, looking past just the Japanese influence in terms of expressionism that was going out through films. You know, you go back to even like The Passion of Joan of Arc. I think this movie kind of fits in with all these, but is able to use the expressionism to create a more sinister atmosphere that a lot of those movies... They are very striking, like even more recently, uh, The Tragedy of Macbeth. They all, which, by the way, you're kind of really into all that stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> Were you doing like a, a, yeah, okay. This crazy Macbeth, uh, de- I was like, wow, I didn't realize there was that much uh, into it. I just love Shakespeare. What can I say? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, so anyway, I was thinking about The Tragedy of Macbeth while watching this because of that black and white. And as much as I think visually striking as uh, Joel Cohen's Tragedy of Macbeth is you watch this movie and you're like, there's something that this movie is able to do that I don't think that one ever does. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's because this is, you know, geez, what are we on? Uh, 50, 53 years ago? 54 years ago this came out? Ooh, something like that. Yeah, I'm bad at math, but something like that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I, so, yeah, you know, you take in the, the audio component, you take in the visual and 
I know you mentioned the first 10 minutes there is no dialogue or if there, there's like maybe a line, but it's very sparse. Early on, somewhat the, the lighting of, of the horse that's kind of in the front and then you see the house in the back that are both very white. Like, you know, it looks like the Empire State Building in Manhattan when it's all lit up. And then you get this cut where it's closer to the, the person riding on the horse and you see the flip of kind of the ghost or the, you know, whatever it is over mm-hmm. it. And there's just something about that moment where I'm like, oh, yeah, this is this is it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really it's really spectacular looking. I, I, I love the expressionism of it. I think it's really interesting because of how deliberate it obviously is, too. You know, the way that this movie looks would fit right in with movies of the 50s and as you say even preceding that but the period piece element of it along with the familiar sort of backdrops of these rural japan mountains it really does feel like it's it's hearkening back to an older era even like it's kind of hard to extrapolate that now because it is so far removed from from the movie coming out but it feels like it is a throwback even for when it's coming out. Totally. And I, I think a big part of that has to do with that the director comes from a, a farming background, his family. And I think a lot of the more, you know, urban kind of settings with, you know, Ozu was touching with all his family dramas, you know, how Tokyo, how the urban life was changing the family dynamic. It doesn't surprise me that this director, you know, I've seen three of his films now that there is such a, the, the setting of, of kind of more sparse minimalism, all this kind of stuff, because that's maybe the life he led growing up. But yeah, I think it was very in vogue during this time period. I mean, you look at Kurosawa, all these kind of, or, uh, you know, with uh, uh, Hirakiri, all, all these kind of films are such a throwback to Samurai and all this time period of, of yesteryears. What's interesting, too, is the juxtaposition of the Samurai in this film versus those which, I mean, I only knew this because I watched that um, the critic talking about it, where samurai are kind of put up on this, um, they're elevated as, you know, like the way knights are in uh, medieval movies. You know, they're so cool and all this stuff. And it's interesting in this, uh, you know, because of his farming background, if you were a farmer, samurai just used your area to fight. You know, there's raping and pillaging. There's all this, like, terrible stuff. So the samurai in this movie are not shown in a... Not no pun intended, but they're not shown in a bright light. I guess they no. are, but they're not because <laughs> right. because of the lighting. That director is Kaneto Shindo, and Kuroneko is part of the extremely specific kaibyo subgenre, which is the monster or ghost cat genre. There were eight ghost cat movies just between 1953 and 1958, but there are a bunch before and after it as well, uh, including influencing hits that don't fall directly into it, like Ringu and Juan. Oh, int- yeah, looking I guess at the the longer uh, influence on uh, Japanese films, which, I mean, I can't imagine this film not, I mean, if, if, if you're into horror, like how can you not see this movie and be influenced <laughs> by it in some capacity? Yeah. It, it, it shakes you up. Definitely. Kuroneko, beyond this ghost cat genre, though, it also has elements of the Onryo legend, vengeful spirits with a rage that can't be contained, and it takes these two legends and it blends them in a really fantastic way. Very emotionally resonant and satisfying. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I I guess the more stupid way of looking at this film is it it being kind of a predecessor to a lot of the the rape revenge type of uh, films that would populate horror. Uh, Obviously, it's at the time, more influenced by the two things in particular you're talking about. But I think what this movie, uh, you know, if you're going to put it in that type of subgenre and more of like a modern way of looking at horror films, I think this movie does 
such an important thing for me, which is early on the scene that kind of is the, uh, you know, the catalyst, the inciting incident of what the revenge will be built on. It doesn't relish it, which I really liked. Yeah. The moment happens and it's done in a way that's very artistic. It shows more of actually during the scene, we see the people watching it. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes these movies, you know, whatever I, I, people, I don't know necessarily that people like it, but sometimes these movies will really sit in that, that scene. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, I get it. Like that. Yeah. That thing that happened was terrible. I don't need to see, like, I don't need, need to see the, the rape scene to know that rape is bad. <laughs> yeah. And to justify yeah, I totally agree. Uh, the revenge. And I, I think the way that this movie did it was just, it's really, really well done where as an audience, we understand what happened. We see how terrible it was because of just the way the visually it shows the fallout of it, you know, the place, the, their bodies afterwards and the fire and all this stuff and the carelessness the samurai have with what they did. And I think the way that they or that he did that was just so well done. Definitely. I mean, I tend to have a really hard time with rape revenge movies. It's just not something I have a good time with. I understand that they're very cathartic for a lot of people, but because of the lasciviousness that tends to accompany those those scenes, it does make me uncomfortable. And I think that this movie does do a really good job of communicating the awfulness of what's happening and the avarice of these samurai as they're biting into the food. And you can certainly extrapolate without having to have like a three minute scene of, of these people getting raped. Yeah. And also, you know, like later movies, like late, you know, lady Snowblood and this thing where it's, there's the list of the people that wrong them and they want to get all these particular people back. I love in this one that they were just like, we will not stop until the blood of every samurai has been spread. Right, all samurai. Our stars, though, uh, are Kichemon Nakamura as Jintoki, Nobuku Otawa as Yone, and Kiwako Tachi as Shige. And one thing that I thought was really interesting about this movie is that it was meant to appear at Cannes, but it was unable to after the festival was canceled that year because France's economy was on fire and civil unrest was rampant in 1968. But part of what lit the spark was the cinema world also being ablaze. The reason for this was the firing of Henri Langlois, an archivist who helped save many of the pre-1937 films that the Nazis were intent on destroying, and he'd gone on to found the Cinémathèque Française, a theater and a museum. And French culture minister André Malraux demanded that Henri privately screen Sergei Eisenstein's October for the visiting Soviet minister of culture, which Henri refused on the grounds that they'd already programmed the week's showings and weren't a government agency. But this was slightly complicated by the fact that they had just moved to the Palais de Chalot, which is kept up with government funds. So Malraux shut them down with the demand of a change in management, saying that they had to fire this guy. And the film world lost their fucking mind. A full defense committee was formed with directors like Godard, Kubrick, Truffaut, Chaplin, Hitchcock. They were all supporting Henri. Uh, the youth protested against what they saw as an authoritative government overstep. This bled into the more widespread protests that were developing as the election drew near. And as I said, the Cannes Film Festival was stopped halfway through in protest, helping to get Henri reinstated, but preventing Kuroneko from getting its proper due. Oh, uh, so it just kind of floundered on release because there was no big Cannes Festival screening for it. Oh my God, I, I didn't know any of that. I'm wondering if, I mean, if, if things like Hour of the Wolf, uh, 2001, uh, I guess also his 1968 films, like I, 
I wonder if that kind of hampered them as well. So it stopped halfway. And so it's interesting that like, if you really got in there just under the wire, you still could have had it. This lack of hype behind it led to a pretty brief screening window in the U.S. for an indifferent audience that was more impressed with the bombacity of Onibaba, the ghost story that Shindo had released four years earlier, which is also very good, I will say. Yeah, the, the Naked Island, Onibaba, and Kiraneko, I watched all those to kind of try to... I, I loved. I saw Kiraneko first, I loved it, but when I love a movie, I like to go back and see what the director did before so I have like a greater appreciation of it. And Onibaba, yeah, it's great. But I just feel like there's something about Kiraneko that maybe, I don't know what he took from that film, but I think this movie, I think it's the emotional component of this, which is so elevated. Because if you just take the, isolate this moment of what if your mom and, you know, wife are dead and you basically can spend time with the ghost of of your wife after she's been deceased, there's just something about these scenes that are so tender and they're so loving that, I mean, it kind of reminds me of, of the movie Ghost, which not a, uh, I would actually, I, I, there's no way I would ever say that's a horror movie, even though there is a ghost subject matter uh, to it, you know, the supernatural. But I there's think there's a scary there is, scene in there's, it. There's at least one scary scene. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, for sure. I mean, yeah. Once you get into like, I don't know what it's called, but when the, the hell demon things like come in, mm. those things, they're visually, yeah, that is scary. But this this movie, it just, it kind of just... I don't know why, but I feel like this and maybe Cronenberg's The Fly are, are two of the most like emotional horror films that I that I can recall seeing that kind of touch you in a way that a lot of these just aren't able to uh, get get on. Yeah, and they similarly linger as well. I think that they stick with you. Yeah, and also you know, in, in contrast to that, the deaths that we see they are like, I mean, I guess for 1968 for a black and white type of film they are pretty brutal definitely i mean the the first neck bite when the blood gushes out is surprisingly intense yeah and i i think the you know the black and white makes it not jarring as much as as i'm watching it i'm like appreciating it rather than like having to look away (laughs) which is a a cool reaction to something so gory where you're like this is beautiful (laughs) absolutely and um just to wrap up sort of the cultural context of this movie that brief window that it had in the u.s was july 1968 as i said coordinated to a typical japanese ghost film release schedule which i thought was interesting but maybe a little early for the u.s which obviously tends to shoot for fall for big horror releases but the reason that this is the case in japan is because it tends to correspond with oban the japanese buddhist festival where people welcome back the ghosts of deceased family members and so ghost movies tend to come out around that time i was hearing about this uh, particular festival you're talking about and they never brought up in Mexico like the Day of the Dead, but I was like, oh, this seems very uh, similar to it going, you know, to <laughs> uh, the Pixar movie Coco <laughs> and just thinking about what they, what, what they did with it. But yeah, the, it's interesting to kind of coincide this like Japanese Day of the Dead type of festival with films with ghosts where people can kind of like re- revisit their family and then also be scared, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> when they go to the movies. It's like an interesting uh, juxtaposition of the two. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. So to get into the actual movie, Kuroneko takes place in feudal Japan. Like I said, it's a period piece, but 
it's not specific about when it is. All we know is that a civil war is raging, which means that it could be set anywhere between 794 and 1185, which is known as the Heian period or the Sengoku period, which is 1467 to 1615. And that great driving score that we mentioned is present right at this very beginning uh, as we sink into the bamboo trees and the credits roll. It's a really awesome credit sequence at the beginning. Yeah, I'm... As someone who doesn't read uh, Japanese, there's just something about the Japanese characters that they're just beautiful looking. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So when there's an opening sequence in it, it has that and, you know, the title comes up and all this stuff. To me, it's like as someone who doesn't read it, it's like I'm just watching (laughs) art like like as a kind of a a filter over this, you know, moving imagery behind it. And it's just it's so cool looking. So. I think that opening kind of just sets you up for what to expect in terms of the beauty uh, of this movie, for sure. Yeah, and I think it swings really hard into showing you just how creepy this movie can be because, you know, you see the troop of samurai uh, emerge from the grove and pace towards the house for a pretty long time. They really linger on it. They're not running towards the house or anything. They take a moment to drink from the little moat and then the looting the house for food, the raping and killing the two women inside, Yone and Shige, her daughter-in-law. Like we said, what's so intense about this scene, despite them not being as aggressively explicit with what's happening, is the close-ups on the face and the filling out what what they've done, the banality that they're showing the 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 horror of normalization is what's really shocking here and also while doing all this kind of since this is the opening it's really setting a tone for the the pacing mm-hmm. like like you're saying when we see the samurai descend upon you know their living space it's just it almost looks like they're kind of like trickling like there's just such a slow the shot is long so it kind of I think such an important part of what makes horror movies great is the atmosphere, the tone, just like, you know, I guess the feel, the vibe, however you want to frame it. And I think in this opening, because of the slowness of it, it really just sets up what's to come. I think one of the reasons why people get so, I don't know if annoyed is the word, but a lot of newer horror movies, you know, they rely on jump scares and all this kind of stuff to create fear. Those moments are just so jarring. And I think in a weird way, they can kind of break the atmosphere. They can break the reality of the moment mm-hmm. because it's so, it pulls you out and it's reminding you that you're watching <laughs> a movie. I think f- this movie, once the credits kind of stop, this movie is very immersive. It's so even keeled with the pacing that whatever this atmosphere is, it, it pulls you in in the same way that, you know, when we see the, uh, I don't know if it's the fog, the dry, whatever, the dry ice kind of stuff it feels like you are being entrenched in it and not in an explicit, to use your word, not in an explicit way where you're not being hit over the head with the score with, you know, like Dario Argento with these colors. It's, it, it, it lures you in in a more subtle way. And I think that speaks to the power of this film. Definitely. And the samurai fade back into the trees and smoke pours from the house because they burned it down for good measure. And a crying black cat licks their faces before resting atop them. And there's a cut, but it's kind of funny to me this time as I was watching it, I was like, man, this really feels like the crow. That is not a connection I would have made, but I now that you're saying it, yes, I see it. Who knows? Maybe the crow was pulling from the foggy malevolence of the great Kuroneko. Yeah, and like, 
you know, like The Crow, this movie, we, which we eventually get into, which is as someone who <laughs> loves, uh, I don't know if I would say I love rules, but like a lot of horror movies like The Crow, we eventually do get into some of the rules of what's going on uh, through the mother's exposition and stuff. And yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, The, the Crow, I guess, using animals as a medium for the afterlife. It's interesting. I mean, I guess on my rewatch, I'm a little unclear. Is it the cat? Is it the ghost? There is like something where I, I guess at a certain point, I'm like, I don't know what is literally <laughs> happening, but also, I mean, who, who cares? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's one thing that I did kind of want to talk about as we get to it in the story where like, I wonder almost if this dude has been through just such an awful time in the war that it literally is just like a cat in the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> like like um, the head samurai winds up saying, where he's like, oh, yeah, you know, he tells the story about going up to slay an, a demon in the mountain, and it was just a robber. And maybe this guy is seeing it as ghosts, but what's really happening is just a cat is is killing these, these samurai. Oh, so this movie, it's almost like a, this is like a comment on the PTSD of... <laughs> of military when they come home that you know the cat is doing this but they're seeing something bigger based off of the horrors they experienced in in a war yeah yeah i i buy that i buy that we come back in at rajoman gate where a shige look-alike dressed in fine attire asks a samurai to escort her home i love that he's like you're a fucking ghost aren't you and she's like what no i'm not a ghost i was just at lord fujiwara's castle and i'm scared Yeah, I love I love uh, just the the type of dialogue where someone's like, "Hey, you're not this thing." Letting the audience know this is definitely what's <laughs> happening right now. Uh, of course, yeah, she has to deny it because, well, as we find out, I think she has to based off of her rules. She's she's actually obligated to lie. Like she yeah. has to lie. So she's actually not a bad ghost <laughs> who's being deceptive. Like she's not deceiving by her own right. will. Which I was like, okay, so she kind of right. had to deceive. <laughs> <laughs> If, I also like that this movie um oh go on. I was just gonna say it's kinda like how people think that if you ask an undercover cop if they're a cop that they have to say yes, but they don't actually. Uh this is like that where it's like if you ask a ghost, you think that they have to tell you yes, I'm a ghost, but she's like, No, I'm I'm just a person. Yeah, I don't think in terms of specters, ghosts, all this kind of stuff, the apparitions, I don't think entrapment is something <laughs> that they have to deal with. I mean I guess like something if you get into like Beetlejuice, maybe there are lawyers. <laughs> In in the in the ghost maybe you know maybe it's there is some kind of judicial system, yeah ex- exactly <laughs> backed up, uh, but yeah there is there is no obligation to any type of constitution besides the agreement <laughs> which I guess is the contract that you made with uh, some kind of demon that is yeah. the only thing that you need to uh, adhere to a lot of these horror movies which I think is is you know it's kind of just what to expect is you see someone doing something bad. And then, you know, whatever the demon, the the monster kills them, it's kind of this like, oh, this is kind of the lesson. What I mm-hmm. like in this is the guy doesn't actually do anything bad in this moment mm-hmm. that I took, but he was a samurai, so now he has to pay the price for what he did. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Complicit by uh, yeah. his very nature. Yes. And yeah, I think there is kind of like a, a simplicity. Well, also, there's an issue, too, with some of these horror movies where it's like, a lot of these people, they get killed because they had sex. It, you mm. can look at it as like a puritanical, you know, whatever, Friday the 13th, all these things where it's like, oh, if you have sex, you will get killed. Sure, there's a conservatism so there's this weird to it. Pers- yes. And I think in this, there is no real, like, this person did something bad, so now these are the repercussions. They did something bad in their life, 
and now here are the repercussions. And I think that on a larger a larger scale thing is more interesting because it's not just this simple cause and yeah. effect. Yeah, I would agree with that. She's walking fast down the path and a cat cries out and the samurai says, even the cats are starving these days. Starving for justice. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that is also doing, I don't know if it's uh, a commentary is the right kind of phrasing, but yeah, like if there is starving, like this idea that, you know, during these times things are rough and I'm wondering, you know, we see the samurai like, they're doing well, the farmers and all these people might be starving. So I think this, in a very subtle way, it's kind of touching on maybe there's some kind of wealth inequality or things aren't balanced. Oh, absolutely. In just a line about saying, oh, the cat is meowing. It's like, okay, <laughs> that way they can kind of touch on this, which yeah. I think is very intentional. Definitely. They make it to the other side of the Glen, and it's a mansion where the burned out house once stood, but it's an illusion. And I love the like split screen that they do here with the trees emerging and moving at the top of the frame to communicate this illusion. It's a really spectacular scene. You know, I think the first time I saw it, I, I don't think I necessarily noticed this or something, but on this viewing, yeah, it very much stood out because I think it, it does two different shots. There's that one... Mm with like the curtain kind of breaking up the two things. And then there's another shot where I think on the upper left side, you see like the bamboo or the reeds moving. Mm. And I was like watching it. And I mean, I think this is a big part of watching horror films is you're like, how did they do this? <laughs> yeah. Especially in practical stuff when, you know, when, when totally. you're, when you're not watching something new and the answer is always just, Oh, they had a computer do it. It's so yes. satisfying to watch a prop come out and be startling and, and say, how is that happening? It's so that's, I love it. I love it. Yeah. I would love a, uh, an issue of Fangora, uh, breaking down these shots in a uh, Kiro Because <laughs> I mean, I know they do more gory stuff, but I'm like, oh, that'd be interesting to kind of break down these like much older films. Definitely. And kind of, yeah, the, the how-to. But yeah, I, I do think more so than, I'm trying to think of any other genre where uh, uh, I think an aspect of watching the film is how are they pulling this off? And I feel like in horror, that is a huge component of, of enjoying them is trying to figure out how they pulled it off. Like a magic yeah. trick almost, I guess. Definitely. And, you know, I think that part of what makes this movie so interesting is that in addition to the, the incredible story and the fantastic, like, uh, uh, fun effects and stuff, but the editing in particular, I think is really fantastic in this. Not only the way that these are edited together to create this illusion, but even the little moments, like, many times we'll see, like, a cat's eyes peer out. And those those cat eyes will just be, like, a quick shot sliced in. And... You don't know if the intent is that's a cat somewhere else looking in or that's them uh, revealing them their true selves for a moment. And the way that, that it maintains that ambiguity, the in ambiguity even, <laughs> uh, the entire way through, I think is just so spectacular. It's so interesting. It creates such a an awesome mystery to it as as you're constantly wondering just how much is demons how much is is these women you know it's just great yeah and i think that's what you know some films like obviously there's there's an intrigue and a mystery with the actual story and and what is happening and i think th this particular thing you're talking about there's an intrigue and a mystery of the, the visual element where it's like what are the things that you're looking at on the screen there's a definitely focus on you know certain things based off of the lighting but this is the type of movie on a second or third viewing your eyes might drift off and notice details you didn't before 
And as a viewer, it's like you can focus on what you want and maybe and decide how that will influence the story. And also to go back to the beginning, without actually understanding dialogue, these these moments can kind of influence the the way that you're watching and, and add to it as a result, supplement it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, she invites him in and he accepts saying, hell, this is better than my place. <laughs> and uh, in comes Yoni, also somehow alive and dressed in finery. And the samurai feels like he recognizes them, but can't place it. And Yoni's ponytail swishes behind her back in delight as a cat's tail would. Fantastic. I love that. I love that yeah. moment. Yeah. You know, the, the biggest thing that doesn't, uh, you know, okay. So the first time I saw this, something that didn't make sense to me. And actually now I, I have a, a theory about it, but no matter how ghastly my mom and my wife looked, I think I would immediately go, Oh, that's my mom and my wife. And here's what I was thinking. This is a very early example of a character, a protagonist who has a disability that they're, they're struggling with, which this character has face blindness. Hmm. I believe it. I believe it. They never say that, that, and you know, uh, it's never called out, but if you don't recognize your mom and your wife, no matter how much you know makeup or whatever they have, there is something you are struggling with, and it makes me think there is something that is you know maybe it's the war, maybe something mm-hmm. happened, maybe he has some type of trauma, but this character is dealing with something. And it's that, all coming together, and that folks. Explains it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, this guy, you know, it makes sense where all he did was rape and pillage them, and so it's fine for him to not recognize them. But this later guy, when he comes in, Jintoki, and he's like, I think you look like my mom. It's like, you should know. Oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry, I was, I, was, I, I uh, started to conflate the scenes. Yes, I'm talking about more the, um, yes, the, the, the next scene when, when, when he says how yeah, familiar they you. look because you, of that. But yes, uh this, it's kind of, yeah, it's more creepy. I guess implying that he was one of the guys that was in there, Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, I think uh, he, he recognizes them uh, as as one of the victims, but, you know, it, it, he might not. It might just be that all samurai, <laughs> as they say, are, are the same, ultimately. That if it wasn't them, it was someone very similar. And he had been in a situation, yeah, he had been in a situation like that, and seeing them just reminded them, or reminded him right. of that. So even if it wasn't them... He is a part of this in some capacity. That's right. It doesn't even actually matter if it was them or not, actually. Exactly. And that's why all samurai must die. (laughs) (laughs) That actually sounds like a movie, right? Yeah. John Tucker must die. There we go. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) They drink some sake and reveal that Shige's husband is just 21 and off at war since he was conscripted at the age of 18. So just a young fella getting pulled off into this war. And uh, they're scared about having not heard from him, but the samurai goes, the whole country is ravaged by war. This just means that he's off being successful. It's a samurai's world now, pointing to his own success as an example. And, you know, for this guy to have literally remarked on how bad things are, that the cats are even starving, and for him to be like, well, all samurai are able to just take whatever they want. It's a samurai's world now. Shige, like, grimace at, at this scene, or, like, at him saying that, is is very much sort of like I think an active retaliation against like uh, masculinity and saying like uh, patriarchal domination of the way that society is will just continue forever. I think that this is very much 
like a feminist movie. I think that it is her pushing back against that and them them sort of standing up for themselves even beyond the grave. Well, yeah, and and I mean, even even though they're ghosts, I love that his reaction to finding this out is, oh, he's fine. <laughs> Right. He's like, oh, he's just off being successful. You have no way of knowing that. (laughs) Yes. The two women that I'm talking to in front of me, I'm not even going to touch on how maybe that's affected their lives because basically you aren't people. Like you have no agency. (laughs) Uh, It doesn't matter. But yeah, he's he's good. Don't yeah. Don't worry about him as he's looking at these people who, you know, obviously have suffered as a result of him being gone, Uh, you know. What, what's his name said it's a man's world but in this case right. it, it's a samurai's world so true james brown <laughs> yeah <laughs> this samurai is sort of the james brown of his time yes i would i would say so <laughs> but yeah nobuko uh atoa uh who who plays the mom is in all three of these movies by this director and i think all three of them there is overtly but there is like a feminist kind of approach on these things. So it's interesting to use the same actress while dealing with these things in, in all three films. Certainly so. But that actress has left the scene, actually. Her mother has left, uh, Shige's mother in law, and uh, she pours him some more sake, and her hand is a freaking cat hand. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I, li- I like the cat hand, which this is also foreshadowing because that hand, that, that cat arm or whatever, becomes a big part of. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Uh, And in the hallway, Yoni is drinking from a water barrel like a cat. And again, there's this quick match shot of an actual cat as she looks up. I I just really love the way that they do that. Uh, Shige lures the drunk samurai further into the house and seduces him. And Yoni does a dance. I love the, again, theatricality of these moments. It's really cool as she's dancing out there, especially when suddenly Shige friggin' rips his throat out with her teeth. You know, blood is gushing and her hair is whipping and fog is pouring out from the house as her silhouette continues to ravage him. Uh, it's just really great stuff. Yeah, the, the cuts between her spinning around where it's, I, I believe it's tight on her, her shoulders and up, where we kind of see her spinning and then cutting back to the, the the grisly nature of there's just something about it it's just you know, what I don't know if mesocene I actually don't really understand what that phrase means but it feels like this is that <laughs> like this is this moment where I'm like yeah you can't really I don't know how you would put this in a script there's just something so visual about this moment that it's just it feels like you're watching it you're like oh yeah this is profound yeah. <laughs> and his corpse is there the next morning but surrounded by rubble once more not a mansion and a cat looks over and meows fuck the meow is scary that was great we love the meow folks uh they run it back with more of the samurai it's not quite a montage but it's definitely abbreviated it kind of rocks to just be like yeah fuck it show him killing a few more samurai in there well yeah i mean the 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 most boring part of this whole thing is the initial kind of the, the pulling of the samurai in. Mm-hmm. So let's just get to the best part, which is them killing them. And let's just see a bunch of those. Yeah. I, I really like the way they did. Is this so during this, mo- uh, abbreviated sequence, is this the first time we see that kind of, I'm trying to figure out the, the phrasing where it, it shows the same moment, like kind of it stutters it like three or four times mm-hmm. in a row and mm-hmm. kind of staggered from one another. I don't even know what that's called. Is there? Yeah, like a, I'm not sure either. It but, was cool though. <laughs> yeah, and they, they use it. If you know, they use it further into the movie. Uh, it almost reminds me of like 
the way like you know when you're watching police story like the jackie chan movie when he goes they do have a really cool stunt and they're like oh we're gonna show the same stunt three times in a row because it <laughs> fucking rocks so these moments when they do that it's i wouldn't say it necessarily like rocks in the same way that jackie chan one does but there is something about it where it really just pulls focus on this moment and it mm-hmm. kind of does make it feel otherworldly and i think they are able to capture kind of something ghastly about it definitely definitely I also like, you know, one of the samurai finally catches on on the way on the walk back and he attacks <laughs> Shige and they do all kinds of wild acrobats. You know, they're flying around, climbing yeah. up bamboo trees, wrapping around this guy and attacking. This is also very cool and feels, you know, the physicality of it for a ghost story is really wonderful. Yeah, I guess it's the what is it? The, the wire. It's like wire work or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I forget the correct phrasing, but. Because of the the fantastical, the fantasy uh, element of this movie, I know this is Japanese, but with the wires and the fantasy element, it reminds me of like what we you know would see way more with the the Usha films uh, from China. But I didn't even know this where I was thinking about the way they use the wires for you know when people are like jumping and doing flips and all this stuff. Uh, as mentioned in that that thing on uh, Criterion Channel, I was talking about is that I guess that's a huge part of of Kabuki is using the wires and doing this kind of stuff. So. It's interesting that it's a throwback to that, but also in film, it feels innovative. (laughs) (laughs) But even though it was done in theater, I guess, uh, uh, prior. But yeah, all the wire work in this movie is just, it's awesome. And yeah, it it does feel like like a ghost. It's able to capture the feel of fantasy because they're moving in a way that you can't under normal circumstances. Definitely. And uh, the chief of Imperial Police arrives to investigate the murder's most foul or murder's most feline even, and he tells the leader of... I like that, yeah. (laughs) He tells the leader of the samurai that he's a disgrace for letting a ghost fuck him up. Uh, Meanwhile, in the north, a young, wild-haired man kills the enemy general while he's stuck in the marsh, and he brings the head to show the governor where he's made a samurai to recognize his feet. This is Hachi, Shige's husband, though he tells the governor that he has adapted the battle name Jintoki of the Grove, which is a very cool battle name. Yeah, I need a... I need a fucking battle name. I I don't know what we're going to do, George, but <laughs> at some point, please endow me with a battle name. <laughs> I think that this is this will be our pen names for the uh, our RoboCop remake remake, is we'll just sign our battle names to them. Yeah, and anyone who reads those battle <laughs> names, and if you're not enthralled, you're a loser. So true. I'm always saying this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this. it's interesting that this movie, you know, it does feel very small and focused in you know this kind of not the world but where they live this moment's kind of interesting because it kind of opens up and kind of shows you know where the sun is and also this whole sequence in the reeds it's very much like uh, onibaba mm-hmm. which i feel like that movie is i don't know if entirely but there's just they're reeds they're in the reeds they're literate yeah. lots of reading <laughs> Yeah, I I love the reads in that movie. I think, you know, there's uh, some, like, very intense close-ups of, like, just eyes in those movies, in the reads. Uh, Boy, it looks good. Yeah, and it's cool that I think for such a, uh, you know, this movie can feel kind of... It sounds like it would be repetitious, but I think this this, this scene in particular kind of breaks things up early on, where it doesn't feel like, like the abbreviated scene you're talking about, that we're watching the same thing happen over and over. And God, just the image of him. Oh, were you going to say the thing with the head? Did I, am I? No, 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 go ahead. Okay. When he's holding the head and it's just, oh yeah, yeah. Cause he already has the battle name. It's just such a fucking cool image. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, you know, he 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 gets uh, cleaned up and sent home, but he finds the raised house and no sign of the women. And an old man tells him about how awful it was there and that they don't know the fate of the family. And this this head of the samurai, uh, Reiko, says, hey, now we all know how brave you are. Time to bust some ghosts, baby. Yes, this it quickly becomes the Ghostbusters. Yeah. <laughs> uh, unintentionally, the, the prequel. I think also... That guy in that criticism was talking about this particular uh, sam. I don't know if samurai, uh, not family, whatever the 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 word is for a group of samurai. I think they were a very notorious historical samurai family, and that they were kind of revered as being like one of the most coolest, like whatever. So it's very. This is the kind of cultural stuff that I don't pick up when I'm watching international film, which is interesting to kind of get into like a, a more local person's. A complimentary criticism of it, but them using this name was for Japanese audiences was very intentional. And people would be like, "Oh wow, this movie has taken the piss out of, um, <laughs> you know, someone who is in a family that's esteemed, which is really mm-hmm. kind of I don't know if controversial, but it doesn't seem like sure. you're supposed to do that." <laughs> sure, sure. It's like if uh, head asshole was George Washington, <laughs> you know, like, oh yeah, okay, I get what you're doing here. Yes. I love this shot as, you know, because he, he obviously he goes to the gate and he sees Shige there and she leads him to the house. And the shot of them all walking along the path, all three of them with the bamboo in the foreground and the deep background is just like amazing. Yeah, I feel like the moments in this movie where it's just people walking and stuff are some of the <laughs> the best shots. These are also the kind of thing where it's like you want to just use these as establishing shots, but this movie really relishes them in a way. Again, I think really trying to capture the pacing and the atmosphere by not cutting through them, we really, it feels more immersive. Definitely. And once he finally gets to the house, he confronts them about how they look like the women he knew. Uh, And he tells them that he wanted to return and he fought as hard as he could to make it back before going, I know you're dying ghosts. And he jumps up to (laughs) slash at them, (laughs) but they vanish without a trace. And, you know, I talked about the visual editing of the cat eyes and everything, but it also works really well in audio form where, you know, he cries out into the night demanding they show themselves. And the only answer is a cat's cry, which makes you wonder, is it just the cat? Right, 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 right. He, he rides off and the women are distraught, torn between their desire to see their husband slash son and the vow they made to the underworld to drink the blood of the samurai. <laughs> Which is, uh, I mean, Great of vow. all the vows, yeah. <laughs> but it's also interesting, some some people, they make vows with the underworld to become famous. I mean, there's a lot of deals people make. This one is, I feel like, more of an honorable deal because there's really, it's a very selfless deal. Sure. <laughs> they think they're doing a good thing for everyone, and perhaps they even are. Yeah. I I think they are. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I, I don't think there's any, I don't think, hopefully you don't have samurai that listen to this podcast. I don't need to get killed by a samurai, <laughs> but... Yeah, fuck the same. <laughs> the world has moved beyond the need for samurai. <laughs> yeah. <That laughs> sorry. I, sorry, samurai out there. Kira, sorry. Did I <laughs> I'm going to get a one-star there? review from a samurai being like, I fucking hate this show. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, how many episodes have you not disparaged samurai? So, I think they could average them True. all and actually... Kind of, I think that's a five-star review. I think that should be a five-star review. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I agree. I agree. So the lighting in that scene, by the way, also is fantastic as they're all sad. But 
Uh, Jintoki returns looking for them still, and Shige emerges again, leading him back. And they all say how much they missed each other, and when they hear a cat's cry, he ruminates briefly on the kitten that they had before he was dragged off to war. And, you know, this is a line that you can really read into. The women that he left growing from the kitten into the killer cat spirits to defend themselves. You know, again, this sort of, like, tossed-off line, but it it adds a lot to the movie. Yeah, I think for a, a film that doesn't have a lot of dialogue, I think not, you know, I, I think sometimes people read too much into what people say and stuff, but I feel like if there's not a lot of lines, I think very much it's, I think you should read into to the lines that are said. And I think, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think you could look into all of it that way. Yone's dance this time is much more mournful. And instead of the seductive aggression of the deaths before, uh, Shige and Jintoki kiss much more gently. This is a really, like, tender scene. It's really kind of beautiful. And they break the pact of murder as they spend the night together, and the next few nights as well, despite Reiko's displeasure at the lack of progress. And, yeah, as uh, first time watching this as, as an audience, this just feels, like you're saying, uh, very tender. But, you know, on my second watch, you know the sacrifices that she's making to spend with him. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's just so, it's, it's just so tragic. This yeah, uh, the scene it really just it really uh, gets me. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really wonderful, and you know he shows up that evening, and Yone says by breaking the agreement to murder all samurai, she bought herself seven days, but now she's plunged headfirst into hell. And there's a real interesting conundrum here, where obviously this was very sad for Jintoki, who missed his wife and mother very much, and was briefly reunited, but. Also very convenient for him, who is now 50% done busting the ghosts. Yeah, and I think also, you know, to touch on Ghostbusters, this makes you wonder, you know, the most famous scene in Ghostbusters where Dan Aykroyd gets the blowjob from the ghost. What did that ghost, what were the consequences of that (laughs) blowjob? Did that ghost have to spend eternity in hell to give that blowjob? And I never really thought about it till this movie. But yeah, as a predecessor to Ghostbusters, now it seems like an implied text. Yeah, definitely. You know, uh, it's it's a real a real moment of triumph for her and of tragedy. <laughs> that scene. <laughs> yes, I mean, I also feel like I whether it's intentional or not. You know, I know I brought up uh, Ghost, but the you know the ceramic scene in Ghost, like this, is the equivalent of, of that sequence in that movie. I definitely. mean, we don't get. We don't get Unchained Melody, but we do get a melody that I would argue is Unchained. Certainly. I would, it's definitely off the chain. And so <laughs> that's Unchained as far as I'm concerned. Yes. <laughs> and he tells Reiko about this and what the ghosts are. And Reiko scoffs at the idea that anyone could hate the samurai. He says, the weak always starve. We risk our lives to fight. That's called courage. Isn't that why everyone respects us? Consider your own case. You were a dumb farmer's son, but now you're Jintoki of the Grove. Who cares about peasants or even considers them human? What ghost would dare hate us? Yeah, it seems like this guy is lacking uh, some self-awareness is the way I would say. (laughs) But I feel like also this is maybe, you know, not to get too analogous, but, you know, people that are really, really like upper class, rich, you know, secession, you know, you think of the show Secession, I feel like there's an element of, yeah, oh yeah, poor people deserve to be poor. We got here because we deserved it, and they all respect and honor us. <laughs> Obviously, this is samurai, but I think it's definitely, there's a way to look at this beyond any type of like military framing and just the upper echelon. Succession rye. Yeah. 
I mean, oh, okay, I like that. Uh, you know, this is maybe proto-society and other uh, yeah. kind of look at horror. Okay. Sure, yeah. Classic Brian Usna action. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, yeah. I, I see it for sure. He sends uh, Jintoki back out to kill the second ghost as well, under penalty of death, and Yone continues to kill Samurai. And finally, Jintoki encounters her once more. She says, I wanted to see you and have you read a sacred sutra to me to extinguish my rage. Then I'll go to hell too. Just come with me to the house. And it's an obvious trap. <laughs> well, yeah. Also, those morning after I left the after the deaths, when everyone's like finding the body, she's just always there, like taking off mm-hmm. her shawl. I'm like, has she just been standing there for eight hours or did she come by after? <laughs> hey, all of the above. She's yeah. she's she's a ghost. She's uh she's she is everywhere and nowhere all at once. <laughs> yes. And yeah, this is ob- obvious trap. Uh this is, you know, to go back into the entrapment. It's hey, this is allowed. You're allowed mm-hmm. to lie as we see here. <laughs> That's so true. He sees her true reflection in a puddle of water, which is very cool. I like this a lot. It's simple, it's disconcerting. Yeah, it also just the it touches on that ongoing, I guess I don't know if it's a rule or if it's a trope, but you know, with vampires undead, this idea that reflections either show the, the tr- you know the true image, and so this moment, the puddle, it's it's just so subtle where it's not like they walk by the mirror, and the way that he sees it, it's just cool, and it obviously informs the decisions that he's about to make. Yeah, definitely so. And he waits a bit longer and attacks, which I like that he sees this and doesn't just immediately freak out. And when he does attack, the fight scene is also fun as hell. You know, you get some wild cartwheels and stuff. She's flying around. But he did cut off her arm, and it turns into a cat-like appendage. Very fun. You know, is she the cat? If a cat had an arm that big, I would be worried. I'll say that. So <laughs> there's some kind hey, of it could hybrid be. Going. Some kind of panther, something in the in the mountains, you know, who knows? Yeah. But he, he takes that arm to Reiko as proof of her death. And Reiko, he wonders why a cat would hate the samurai, but he also says, hey, you did it, and we really got to make the most of this, Jintoki. And, you know, like I said, he tells this story about how the emperor once ordered him to kill a demon on the mountain, but there's no such thing as demons, and it was just a bandit. There's nothing special about that, though. So bingo, bango, bongo, now it's a demon. And this is no cat. This is a thousand-year-old goblin cat the size of a cow. And they're going to make it the talk of the capital by having him undergo a week-long purification ritual. Yeah, I think this is also director taking the piss out of the samurai. It's like, oh, all these tall legends, you've heard about them? Yeah, they probably just fucking killed a bandit, okay? (laughs) Like, there's nothing honorable about anything they've done. It's just, it's all exaggerated. Fuck these people. That's how I (laughs) took that. But I don't know if that's how we were supposed to. (laughs) He hears the voice of Yone telling him to return her arm, or she'll be a vengeful ghost forever. And she also tricks him twice by pretend like he like agrees to do that but she also tricks him by pretending to be a royal seer sent to bind the evil spirits that might prevent the purification from working and gets him to let her in and and like an absolute fool and this face blindness coming into full effect here uh he just hands her the arm (laughs) gotcha dumbass and doesn't notice until he sees that she has an arm. He is more observant of a missing arm than this is my mom. So, yes, this is totally the face blindness. This totally makes sense. It's the only way to explain it. <laughs> yeah. And he tries to get her, but she flies through the ceiling into the night. <laughs> yeah, which ugh, the the image of her with the arm in her, her mouth and all this stuff. It's just her going into the night because of how white 
her outfit is, it really just speaks to the the, con- the the visual, the cinematography in this movie, and just how well they're able to capture these stark contrasts. Definitely. And uh, he staggers back to the house, disheveled and hallucinating himself, smooching Shige, before collapsing amid the foggy wreckage, and snow starts to fall and cover his body as a cat is heard meowing in the distance. Wow. Every horror movie should end with a cat meowing. I'm sorry, <laughs> but that in terms of the criteria of what makes the greatest horror movie of all time that has to be in it so a lot of movies are just out of the there running. you go well that's that's an easy easy check mark there but that's a great segue let's get into it we're now at the part of the episode where we sum up why this is not just a good horror movie but is in fact the best horror movie ever made and i'm gonna let you start so what makes something the greatest it's not necessarily in the vacuum of it being perfect or all these things what defines something as being the greatest is that it is better than everything else. And using that, uh, I've seen a lot of horror movies. I've seen a lot of non-horror movies. And with all this in mind, this is better than every movie I've seen in the horror genre. <laughs> there you go. Easy enough. <laughs> yeah, pretty plain. You know, if it's, if it's better than all the others, then I guess it's the greatest, right? Pretty easy. Sure, sure. Yeah, it's just, I, I feel like all the strengths of this movie, they just, they're they're so much higher than all the other horror films. I think there are other horror films do things that this movie doesn't, but this movie's not even trying to do those things. So it's not that those strengths are weaknesses for this movie, but I would argue every strength of this movie exceeds the strengths of the other ones. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. You know, to me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it's such an interesting confluence of old and new to me you know i think even just in the one scene that we mentioned uh where the blood is really coming out of the neck and it feels very shocking because of the black and white photography and the way that it's it's utilizing the throwback nature of what it's doing to make that more shocking the whole that can kind of be applied to the entire movie i think it does such a spectacular job of feeling very fresh and very modern and and still utilizing the filmic language and visual language that we know from previous movies that had that had been coming out through the 30s through the 50s you know and this is late 60s so even the 60s at that point and by leveraging that filmic language and applying modern thought to it i think that it really does something very special and it's very deliberate You know, so much of this movie and so much of what I like about other movies can be, you know, sort of a laissez-faire feeling to it, a sort of lightning in a bottle feeling. But to me, this really feels like the next step from Onibaba. This feels like someone taking what they learned from an already fantastic movie and building on it and creating something that is really special. And and I love cats, and so the fact that this is so cat heavy is, of course, delightful to me as well. And uh, it does uh, it does ghost stories well, and and it's fun, and it's funny in moments, and it it's not overly aggressive. It's just the best damn movie ever made, best damn horror movie at the very least. <laughs> I agree. I agree with everything you said. Yeah, I mean, I think this the immersiveness, you know, and what makes horror movies great is the immersive quality images that stay with you taking something supernatural something scary and kind of experiencing it for the runtime also you know i think in horror movies there's a lot of social messages or whatever and a lot of them i mean some don't but the ones that do i think there's something poignant being said and in all those categories i just said i think this movie knocks it out of the park and i think like you said the fact that it has a cat too it's such a mainstay 
of haunted house films, you know, and these ghost stories in, in Japan. It's just, you need a cat, okay? There's a reason why Alien has the cat, okay? If your horror movie doesn't have a cat, it's bullshit. Yeah, it's true. Look, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> yeah, even The Wizard of Oz has a cat, okay? That's right. The lion. That's right, okay. a great, great cat. Yeah. Well, no, also, um, uh, well, the the witch, uh, she's, she's also got a cat that Toto chases at the very beginning. Oh my God, you're right. I forgot about that. <laughs> Wizard of Oz, not a horror movie, but still a great film. It's possible. Sure. <laughs> Look, I think that I could probably stretch that definition into making The Wizard of Oz a horror movie. But uh, that's, a, that's a discussion for another time. Uh, Zed, I want to thank you so much for coming on the pod, man. This was an absolute blast. And uh, please tell people where they can find you on social media, your other projects, all that jazz. Yeah, you, you can find me on all socials uh, at Zed Cutsinger. Uh, you know, including Letterboxd. I started doing movie stuff on, on TikTok uh, under Zed Cutsinger. And yeah, I have a podcast, So You Did a Thing, where I interview people about a thing they did. It's primarily, at this point, interviewing musicians about an album they worked on. But uh, movies always find a way into their discussion, into the discussions, because I don't know if you could tell, but I'm a little obsessed with films. So <laughs> film always <laughs> oh, finds no, a way into it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is easy because we're talking about a movie, but still... I don't know if you noticed, film found a way of making its way into this conversation. I actually did notice. <laughs> I, you know, it was subtle, but I did find it. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a nuance to bringing up uh, movies when you're talking about a movie. But yeah, I think we did it. Uh, George, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I, I love this movie so much. You know, it's the greatest horror film of all time. So it was nice to be able to talk about it in a long form because, honestly, most people have never heard of this movie or seen it. So... <laughs> I'm glad we were able to, like, really get into it. Yeah, well, hopefully that will change, and everyone will go out and, and watch Kuroneko now, and it's streaming yeah. on the Criterion channel, which I always encourage people to uh, check out. So, there you go. Um, as far as my plugs, people can find me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. That name applies pretty much everywhere. You can check out the Patreon as well. If you want to support the Patreon for just a couple bucks a month, there are all kinds of fun bonus episodes about all sorts of things. You know, we have talked about the Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episodes. We have talked about Kurt Vonnegut and my burgeoning love for, for his work that I am finding myself enjoying very much. Uh, we did a, a spotlight episode on Kurt where we actually read the short story epicac which might be illegal but don't don't snitch <laughs> and uh, all kinds of fun stuff over there at one point wasn't charlie kaufman working on a slaughterhouse five screenplay i'd be into that uh you know maybe that was a canceled thing but yeah fucking kurt is the man he's great he's great very fun uh, i've been really enjoying the short stories a lot and i am looking forward to reading galapagos and breakfast of champions are the first on my list for the upcoming novels so there we go uh who knows maybe there will even be a second check-in for for a kurt episode <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, so you can you can check out all kinds of fun stuff. And there is also more specifically horror stuff there as well. It's not just horror-adjacent things. So so check out the Patreon if you want to get even more of this wonderful show. Uh, Zed, thanks again, man. And everyone, have a good one. Bye.